I've been shy my entire life. I don't think it's because of any past trauma or something that happened to me in my childhood. It's just the way I am. Like some people are born with red hair or freckles. It's a problem I've had to deal with in order to function like a regular human being, especially to avoid awkward social situations, which inevitably end up happening anyway. Don't get me wrong. It's not a kind of agoraphobia where I'm afraid to leave the house or I don't have conversations with anyone ever. In fact, in the right social situation and the right amount of liquid courage, I could be downright outgoing. It's the small things like asking for help or answering the door or the telephone that gives me immense anxiety. I don't exactly know why. Perhaps it's the thought of being a burden on someone else or putting someone else out that makes me feel uneasy. In the United States, I can get by without many awkward social situations, although they do happen. I can go to the gas station and pump gas without having to talk to anyone, get groceries, or any day-to-day needs fairly easily. However, since being in Costa Rica, everything is different. First of all, I barely speak Spanish, which has proved to be a very difficult problem in a Spanish-speaking country. I knew what I was getting into, and it's not like I'm an American in a foreign country demanding that everyone speaks English. I genuinely try, but I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. First, when I was trying to talk about the ocean, I kept saying la mer instead of el mar, which means something totally different. Carlos demonstrated on his hand what the difference between the ocean and what I kept saying which was sexually licking someone in a very intimate place. I also mixed up hermosa with hermano, which meant I was calling random things I liked very brother instead of very beautiful. Other times, like ordering food or entering a store, and I hear a torrent of Spanish, I stop, freeze, and stretch an uneasy smile across my face. Usually, my anxiety reaction response is to declare si or muy bien, like an American Borat trying to speak Spanish. Then, when they realize that I'm not a seasoned expat fluent in Spanish, usually they smile and continue doing something else, or just mumble what I expect is, never mind. Sometimes I even have to rehearse in my head when entering a bodega what exactly I will say when I approach the cash register. I've gotten very good at buenos dias and muchas gracias. I know this fumbling of language is normal. I know feeling socially outcast in a new country is normal. I know that feeling like I need to rehearse every single conversation in my head and beat myself up over it is a normal part of my social anxiety, and I know it will become easier with time. I can't wait for the day where I can proudly walk into a store or a bank or a restaurant and with confidence buy or order whatever it is I need without questioning myself. It'll all come with experience, and it'll come in time. The trick, I hope, is to be gentle with myself and laugh with the mistakes along the way. Welcome to another episode of Sweet Gringo Blood. House number three, the jungle box, or the camouflaged cult deep within the rainforest. The listing had two words that mattered. Air conditioning. This, of course, meant a reprieve from the humidity, but also that the house probably had the ability to be sealed up tight enough to stave off the onslaught of mosquitoes. The girls, canine and human, were already getting into bed, while I was chain-smoking and scrolling through vacation rentals on the cabin's porch. 
I shot a quick, hopefully not too desperate sounding message off to an owner of a house nearby, seeking both a last minute reservation and an early check-in. It was late, so I thought any reply would arrive after the sun. But within minutes, my phone buzzed. The box is available for three days, the message read. Would you like to take a look at it? The issue with short-term online vacation rentals is that you have to rent them sight unseen. Normally, this hasn't been a problem, and usually Chris and I can deal with varying degrees of discomfort to stick to a budget. But now, we had everything we owned and our dogs in tow, our whole lives. The photos of the yellow cabin were staged beautifully, enticing enough that I had made the reservation months earlier, while I was still drowning in vinyl record mailing boxes and long lists of home repairs. And we had gotten stung, figuratively. Literally, a hundredfold. I eagerly responded to Marco, the owner, and agreed to meet him after seven the next morning. Though I was still sweaty, itchy, uncomfortable, I fell asleep tangled in the mesh netting around the double bed with new resolve. There was hope. Drew is a problem solver. More often than not, this is a positive in our lives. Though, there are times I just need someone to listen and not formulate a plan of attack. But hey, that's a conversation for our counselor. Still, whatever it may be, he always finds an answer, though I may not always like it. He's probably the most resourceful or stubborn person I know. I have a tendency to suffer through uncomfortable situations, often not seeing a way out. Drew sees no point in being uncomfortable when there's another solution, and that's what he did. Since I met him, Drew has always risen with the sun. Here, being closer to the equator, the sun cycle is much more standard, our closest star rising and falling at 12-hour increments, roughly 5 a.m. and 5 p.m., so he was gone for hours before I woke up. I am not a morning person, and I've been called a dragon lady on more than one occasion by more than one person. That morning, although I was still uncomfortable, I sat in the hammock with a glass of cool water, The girls were laying on the deck, moving from shady spot to shady spot, and then I heard the groan of metal. Where have you been? I asked, as Drew appeared. Finding us a new place to stay? Really, where? It's just a little way down the road. How are we going to get all of our stuff there? We don't have a car. We'll have to walk. And just like that, Drew had solved our mosquito problem before I had even woken up. I'd be lying if I told you this was the first time he'd solved a major problem while I was sleeping. It must be true what they say about early birds and worms. We gathered up our dogs and possessions and set off. By this time, it was late morning and the sun was oppressive. Puerto Viejo has a few side streets, but the main stretch is one long road that runs parallel with the water, separated by palm trees, resorts, restaurants, and other fauna. Some of it is paved, most of it isn't. And the shoulders are narrow, as most people don't walk, but either rent bikes, cars, tuk-tuks, or scooters. Roxy and Echo have never been great on a leash. No matter what we've tried, those no-pull leashes that go around their snout, and Echo took this opportunity to show us how much she hated it by death-rolling, like a crocodile, in every lawn we passed. Full-body harnesses to control their pulling, saying no, clickers, stopping entirely when they pull, pleading, begging, crying. Nothing has really helped. And now that they're five, we've kind of given up on trying to get them to stop. They are who they are. Maybe because they're part hound, they need to investigate as many smells as they can, as fast as they can, so they can jam them in their filing cabinets, what we call their noses. 
This was perhaps the worst time to pull. As we're dodging broken glass, dead bugs and lizards crested to the sidewalk, motorcycles and tuk-tuks whipping around cars, and bicycles heading to the beach, we're also lugging two suitcases, bumping and cracking with the uneven terrain, and trying to control curious Echo and Roxy from running across the street for a food cart treat, or running into the trees to chase some bird or street dog. I was sweaty. I was irritated. Whenever Drew knows I'm having a hard time with a hike, he remains super chipper. He was in front and turned around to look at me while we waited to cross the street. How's it going back there? He was smiling and slick with sweat. He looked delighted. Are you serious? I was also glistening with sweat, but not in a cute way. I was a gremlin that had gotten wet. Well, we're almost there. It's just down that gravel path. When we found a safe time to pass, we were able to be a little looser with the leashes because it was a quiet road. Few houses, few street dogs, lots of puddles from the rain the night before. The girls weaved in front of us, smelling flowers growing between the chain-link fences and attempting to drink street water, smell a dead crab, or jump away from a rogue cricket. They were having a blast. Our third house was listed online as The Jungle Box. The typical sliding metal gate opened into a white concrete parking pad and courtyard, with a rock garden and comfortable benches. Past the garden was, quite literally, a giant glass and concrete box with 20-foot ceilings and a metal roof. Set up like a hotel suite, the space featured a kitchenette with a little stove, refrigerator, and countertop with chairs. For furniture, there was a small couch, a giant king-size bed, a bathroom with a stone walk-in shower, and skylights. The best part, however, was that when Drew had met the owner there earlier, he had cranked up the air. When we got in, I could see my dogs sigh with relief. It's not like they have never been in the heat before. In fact, they spent most of their life in southern Louisiana and Georgia, where the summers are brutal. But having just come from snowy Pittsburgh winter, their poor bodies just didn't have time to adjust to the drastic change in weather. Mine hadn't either. When we got in, none of us were particularly tired, but we all collapsed on the bed and had the best sweat and bug-free sleep we've had in days. We had three days to get back to planning, to searching for a long-term rental. The perfect permanence we had dreamed of back in the States. Well, that I had dreamed of. And you know what we did? Absolutely nothing. We got no closer to finding that spot. In fact, our short stay in the concrete box was the most uneventful of our many, many rentals to come. The first day, we grocery shopped, walked on the beach, caught up with the dogs, now without continual drooling and panting. Day two, Krista tried her hand at making gallo pinto for breakfast, and we spent the day trying to find me a new pair of sandals as I'd blown one of mine out. You'd think finding flip-flops in a surf-oriented beach town would be a breeze, but like toilets and mattresses, finding footwear that fit me comfortably would be another whole challenge. It was on day three that Krista met our rental host, Marco. My interaction with him had been brief. He showed me around the jungle box, flipped lights on and off, explained how to turn on the stove, and offered to allow us to pay cash. He was laid back, friendly, an eternal surfer vibe, and I shit you not, Italian. Three rentals, three hosts, two of which were Italian nationals who'd been in Costa Rica for more than two decades. But Marco was much more low-key, not quoting beer commercials or suggesting we shoot rum before breakfast. Because we had rented the place on such short notice, the towels and toilet paper hadn't been restocked. 
When I asked where the closest laundromat was, Marco insisted we walk up the road to his house to find what we needed. The side streets in Porto Viejo are labyrinthine, with metal gates opening onto fresh tributaries and smaller arteries. Metal shacks stand proud next to mini mansions, all fully or partially hidden by the green wash of the rainforest. There are no conventional addresses in Costa Rica. Even Google Maps uses either coordinates or a phrase that reads something like, 200 meters west of the dental office, 300 meters east of the sewer treatment plant. Kirsten and I took a snaking route north, following Marco's directions, left at the pink house with the blue bars on the windows and the poodle laying on the porch, right at the half-dead palm, straight over the narrow aqueduct, and then we arrived. His house was chocolate color, three stories tall, and appeared to be perpetually under construction. The top floor looked hollowed out, while the buzzing of saws emanated from the second. The first was well lived in. As we approached, a young man shifted in a hammock and took down his shades. Sun glinted off of his bare chest. He couldn't have been more than 20 and looked every bit the part of the cliché pool boy. He asked, looking for Marco? Without waiting for a response, though Drew and I mumbled one anyway, the young man pointed around the side of the house. There were others, men and women, roughly the same age, wearing the same amount of clothing all around the property. Tending to the garden, hanging laundry on thin lines crisscrossing from adjacent trees. Some rested in hammocks or on the concrete of the rear patio. Everyone seemed to be floating around, dreamlike, as if nothing was pressing or worrying enough to get them to move any faster. Or maybe it was drugs. Hey, Marco, Drew called out and placed the reusable shopping bag full of dirty clothes between his feet. On a stone staircase, a man stood from a tile cutter. He had shoulder-length, sun-bleached hair. He, too, was shirtless and just as toned and fit as the younger crowd lounging around his compound, but as he closed the gap between us, the damage and age of his skin was visible. Drew mentioned that he had been living on this little beach village for 20 years, and from the looks of it, he had spent most of his time on the beach or cresting a wave. "'You found me,' Marco said. He was sweaty and covered with the rough glitter of home improvement." Drew introduced me, and I let out my best, mucho gusto, a phrase that is similar to nice to meet you in English, but literally translates to much pleasure. The phrase, too, seemed fitting for the house. My initial impression to the man in his villa, and, as of yet, no discernible partner in his age demographic to be found, the grounds might have seen their fair share of pleasure. Marco shook my hand and asked, are you enjoying my box? I stuttered. Drew, thankfully, pulled out a wad of colorful Costa Rican colones and took over. We love it. And the dogs do, too. I just wish we could stay longer. Yes, I have new arrivals tomorrow afternoon. The cash exchanged hands and was then given to another shirtless teenager who disappeared into the house with it. And this place, I said. Been working on it long? I have no idea when I started, Marco said, laughing, or when it will be done. His eyes followed down our bodies to the dirty laundry. Yes, the wash. Marco glanced around then and zeroed in on an alcove with two bodies, a male in a plastic chair and a female swinging lazily in a reggae-colored hammock. Both were reading. Honey, Marco said, can you show my guests to the washing machine? He didn't snap his fingers, but somehow it felt like the gesture was implied. She hopped up, dropped the book, and hurried over to shake both of our hands. There was minimal force in her grasp, like holding a fistful of feathers. 
but her voice was chipper. Follow me. Marco waved a goodbye, and we followed the young woman to the opposite side of the compound. Along the way, she said, Marco told me you live here now. That's the plan, Krista said. We sold everything in the States. Oh my, the young woman said. You are living my dream. I cannot wait to live here full time. Though she couldn't have been much older than the average undergrad straight out of high school, she, like the house, appeared lived in. Comfortable. Stuck. Like she had been here forever. You're from the States? I asked. Minnesota. Krista said, Hey, I'm from Wisconsin. We are, here we are, the Minnesotan said, clearly not interested in commiserating about the Midwestern United States. We walked through a door frame with no door into a room with no roof. A tentacled machine sat in one corner that resembled a tiny alien spacecraft rather than a washing machine. Pairs of boxers, swimsuits, and skimpy panties were pinned to lines, and we sloshed into an inch of standing water. Mosquitoes converged. Do you know how to use one of these? Totally, I said, lying. Costa Rican washing machines are, like many things in this country, very different than anything else I've ever experienced. I guess they're made to be more cost-effective than buying a regular washing machine, as one will cost you about 300,000 colones, roughly $500. They do sell the typical American-style washing machines and dryers here, but they're much more expensive, as a lot of them have to be imported from other countries. The Costa Rican semi-automatic washing machines, however, are made right here. What makes them special? Perhaps the way they make me want to stab myself in the eye with a sharp pencil. They're basically a large tub with a divider with a washing and air drying on either side. You have to manually turn on the water supply and fill the tub up, throw in clothes and soap, turn the water off before it overflows, and stand by and watch the agitator wiggle around. The machine also doesn't drain on its own. Once, I made the mistake and came back to my clothes soaking in a tub full of ice-cold sandy beach water for four hours. After a manual drain, you remove the hose and put it over to the air-dry side, where the water is pumped into the tubular agitator that spins and dries your clothes. Sometimes this works, sometimes it doesn't. You can only put in a few garments in the tiny little chamber at a time. Then... Don't forget to put the weird floppy plastic circle that comes with the machine on top of your clothes. Somehow, this helps with the air drying process. Turn on the water to rinse the soap off, then pray that you've balanced the clothes in the machine properly to give the motor enough momentum to actually whip your clothes damp enough to hang them up and dry outside. Oh, and don't forget to turn the water off halfway through the air dry cycle or your clothes will be sopping wet. You may think, only 15 minutes for a wash and 3 to 5 minutes for a rinse and air dry cycle? They can't be that bad. But you're wrong. If you've never used one of these machines, you will always be wrong. Trust me. I would discover all of that later. In that moment, in Marco's compound, I saw a strange machine, sexy underwear, a stoned Minnesotan, and I wanted to run. I looked at Drew, who'd had the bag of dirty laundry clutched to his chest like he was shielding an infant from a sandstorm. He clearly had no desire to be in the strange outbuilding any longer. I didn't either. I said, we've got an appointment online, but we'll stop back by later. Are you sure? The woman asked. A few hours, I said. Drew had taken the lead and was speeding up the path. Behind us, we heard the woman say, okay, I'll be here. We received a few waves from the young folks lounging around, but didn't see the Marco again. And soon we were back out on the side road. 
A Chihuahua mix, filthy and scarred like he'd been in the streets for too long, sauntered across the gravel and gave us the side eye, a look that implied we were crazy to have gone in there. We hurried back to the jungle box. Echo and Roxy watched as we packed our bags, their faces concerned. This was a look we would grow used to in the coming months. We moved around in relative silence, as there wasn't much to say. This wasn't working. We both knew it. After four days in the cabin, three in the box, we knew the Caribbean wasn't it. We had to keep looking. After a phone call with Carlos, he insisted we go to his inland village. There, he said, we would find happiness. We would be settled. And he would be there first thing the next morning to pick us up. The rest of our last night in Puerto Viejo, we had time to calm down, to relax, to reflect. Like any halfway decent narrative, you need to start with action and let the backstory come in during chapter two or three. We'd definitely gotten some action in the first two houses. And this third gave us some breathing room and enough space to consider what had brought us to this point. I couldn't help but reflect on how far we'd come, physically and mentally. March in Pittsburgh. The slush on the sidewalk was a carnage of dirt, road salt, and garbage, just starting to ice over again. We had been living in the two-bedroom shotgun house since January, and it had yet to feel like home. Outside, our view was of a cemetery, and losing ourselves in the constant barking from our neighbor's pit bulls. These poor dogs spent the majority of their life chained up in a snow and dirt lot they called a backyard. Two months before we ran from Marco and possibly his harem, I was sitting in the upstairs office trying to concentrate on grading student papers when my head began to ache. I realized I'd been clenching my jaw for two hours. When I went downstairs to find Drew, all I said was, Barking? And he closed his laptop with a sigh, like he was restraining himself from chucking it into the wall. Most days in Pittsburgh were like that. We had moved there to be in a bigger city, with more to do, job opportunities, and honestly more of everything. But we found ourselves held hostage by the house. And the winter. Working from home, in a city blanketed by snow, with nothing to do but drink, might have been the beginning of the end of our time in the U.S. There was literally no reason to leave the house, except for groceries, and even those you could buy online. The occasional dog park excursion, or to a bar, which we rarely did anymore. The convenience of never having to leave home is not all it's cracked up to be. It suffocates you. Later that night, we gathered around the kitchen island as we did every single night, just the two of us. Drew had created a playlist called Baby Jams, a collection of my beloved yacht rock. Little River Band was playing throughout the house as I poured some shots. I'd thrown something into the oven for dinner. We had no friends, nowhere to go, nothing to do, and no in-person job to give us some semblance of structure. The days were passing like broken records. This was an every-night routine, and really the only thing that was keeping us from feeling the pressure of our monotonous life. The pain that our great escape from Wisconsin had turned into this, lonelier and much of the same. So we said cheers and down the drinks. Actually, Drew had taken to saying salud as his heart was still somewhere in Central America. That night, we snapped. Maybe it was some clarity that came to us in the form of a song, a story, or maybe it was just a feeling. I don't know how it began, but Drew looked at me like he was in physical pain. He said, if I don't go somewhere else, if I don't do something else, I'm going to kill myself. 
To this day, I don't know if he was saying this for a fact, some way of expressing his frustration, or if he really meant that literally, and I don't want to know. That was the snap, the moment we realized we needed to change our lives, drastically. The next day, I was paralyzed with fear. In the seven years we had been together, we had already been everywhere searching for home. Louisiana, Florida, Georgia, briefly in New Mexico, Wisconsin, and now Pennsylvania. Drew was convinced that we wouldn't find it stateside, but I was afraid. I'd forgotten the good I felt in Costa Rica, and only focused on the bad parts, which were entirely due to the shitty study abroad job we had left. But I could agree that searching for yet another place in the United States was going to disappoint me, because it already had. The only thing left was to try something else, and Costa Rica it was. Little did we know that less than two months later, we would be 3,000 miles away, the furthest way we'd run yet. And now, here we are, after nine nights and three rentals, back in the car with our old buddy Carlos, driving away from the place we had thought would be our permanent spot, heading inland to try again with house number four. And stick around for a little bit of advice after our theme song. And now, here's a little expert advice from amateur expats. Number one. In Costa Rica, addresses aren't a thing. Get familiar with landmarks. Number two. Keep trying to communicate, even if you sound like a cartoon character. Number three. When you move overseas, you'll want to pack all of your clothes. Don't. You won't wear most of it, except underwear. Buy that wholesale. Number four. My mother-in-law always says, wherever you go, there you are. The older you get, the more that makes sense. Number five. Your dogs will grow to hate the sight of suitcases. Number six. Be kind to everyone you meet, because you never know who will be there for you when you need them. They might be driving you away from cults and mosquitoes. Thanks for listening. If you have some free time, please review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your shows. It helps us out so much. Join us next time when we arrive in very rural Costa Rica and I watch a young boy run into a wall because he thinks my husband is a monster. This is Krista and Drew signing off from somewhere in Costa Rica.